Kingdom Business Summit 2023 is here. And this is our biggest and best lineup of speakers we've ever had. This event is two and a half days of high level practical business training. The event is jam packed with the tools you need to scale up your business and deepen your walk with the Lord. Over the two and a half days, I will be bringing some business training as well as a hand-picked group of high-caliber speakers. There's a formal dinner where you can let your hair down and have fun with live entertainment. We will have a worship service where we get together, lift our arms, and praise Jesus. We will have a faith-filled prayer meeting, a networking space to meet like-minded entrepreneurs, an exhibitor showcase area, and we will finish with a time of prophetic ministry where you can get a word directly from the Lord. So if you're looking to scale up your business and at the same time learn how to deepen your walk with the Lord, then I invite you to join me for two and a half days of practical business training at Kingdom Business Summit 2023. Well, hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. You know, my goal here is to find people that have amazing stories, who are practitioners of kingdom business, people who are out there building businesses, focused on firstly advancing the kingdom, uh, using their gifts and talents as ministers in the marketplace and bringing that information to you. And it's a delight to do that. Today, I have a wonderful guest, a friend for many, many years. So we're gonna have a really cool conversation because I know enough about his past to be able to dig around and get some of the gold out for you. Today we're joined by John Dingamance all the way from Tassie. For those of you who aren't Australian, that's a little island off the bottom of Australia that a lot of people try and forget, um, but actually it is a very, very beautiful part of this great world. John, it's so good to have you here. Why don't you tell our audience who is John Dingamance? Great, thank you, Wes. I appreciate the opportunity. So. Uh, John Dingamance is a son of migrant parents who arrived in the 50s from the southern part of the Netherlands into Tasmania uh, because Tasmania was the Apple Isle and my dad worked in orchards. <laughs> so that's how we got here. Of course, he never worked in orchards. He ended up in the building industry. So I first got involved in the building industry as an apprentice carpenter and uh, and then at the age of 25 started my first construction company, which, uh, which grew into a very large business. But uh, yeah, I'm uh, happily married to Ailey We've been married for just over 40 years, and uh, we have five children, three sons, and uh, twin daughters that arrived seven years later. They weren't planned, <laughs> and they're gorgeous, but uh, they're all grown up now, and we have grandchildren as well. And uh, most of them live here with me, but uh, Wes, as you know, Summer lives um, down the road from you <laughs> Yeah. In, Clip, so that's us. So did your dad take you out on site? Like we, were you on work sites as a young kid and, and you got to kind of see it? Yes. So I'd help him on a Saturday. He was a bricklayer. So I'd help him set up the site for, so that he could get ready to go again on the Monday morning. To be honest, I grew up thinking, oh, there's only one industry. That's a building industry. Mm. Interestingly, though, I, I do this talk live by design, not by default, because I actually started my life and certainly my career by default. And part of that is what I've just, just said. But um, at the end of sort of grade 10, I went to the Commonwealth Employment Service and um, said, I want a job. 
And the guy said, okay, what sort of job do you want? And I said, oh, I want to be a research scientist. And he goes, well, hmm, I don't think we've got any research science jobs going. I said, uh, why do you want to be a scientist? I said, well, science was my favorite subject at school. And he said, uh, what's your next favorite subject? And I thought about it and I said, oh, I like woodwork. He said, um, okay, I've got a job going as an apprentice carpenter. Do you want to try out for that? And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> that was the one and only job interview I've ever had in my life. <laughs> And I got the job as an apprentice cabinet. I don't know that it's quite woodwork, right? But uh, but anyway, that's. I guess you are working with wood, so I guess it's. I guess it probably is. Oh hey, I hope you're enjoying this week's episode. Listen, I'm just here training a group here in this room, but I need you to subscribe to my channel. Guys, do you think they should subscribe to the channel? Yeah. Guys, please subscribe. I think there's something really value about young kids kind of getting exposed to some form of business or you know some form of trade at a really young age you know getting the work boots on and being there even if you never quite follow the exact same path but seeing that work ethic of cleaning up on a Saturday ready for a Monday right you know just so valuable I think for the kids to kind of come through and see parents working diligently and setting those high standards um, bring us up to speed today I know you're involved in quite a number of things so what are you what are you doing what fills up your days now yeah. The building company I started at the age of 25 grew very quickly. Um, I ended up selling that. It was the largest construction company in Tasmania. The equivalent turnover now would be in the order of 160, 170 million. We uh, sold that. That's still operating and right. still the largest company in Tasmania. It's a successful business. Um, and we moved into focusing on uh, initiating development projects. So identifying opportunities. Um, and I've built a team uh, at the time around me of, um, uh, of architects, engineers, project managers, scientists, and so on. And we identify projects, initiate them, get them up and running, design them, get them through all the statutory permits and all of that, and then get them up and running. And we also have a consulting business that does the same for other developer clients. So that's what keeps me busy at the moment. You have a propensity, I guess, what I would say, like a, a, an environmental flavor to what you do. In fact, the whole company is called Sustainable, right? So what, why? I'm, I'm keen because let me just preference it. I think a lot of people are still not convinced that we... So that, you know, in looking after the environment, we would all agree is a really good idea, but there's a lot of people that have taken it to the extreme today, right? From your point of view, why is looking after the environment and making things sustainable important in construction? Okay, so it really goes back to being a, a, a young boy. I, I loved nature, still do. I'm a passionate bird enthusiast, uh, you know, um, understanding the behavior of birds and so on. And I've sort of brought that into my life. But the fact is, I knew nothing about business. When I first started my company, I knew nothing about business. And I went forward on the basis of what I thought was right. Turns out that was kingdom business. And I didn't know it at the time. Um, and a key component of that is that where to make things better. So when it comes to development and construction in particular, it's, it's all about not trashing uh, the planet, but enhancing the environment. And, um, and we've made a, a strong commitment to that at an early age and um, at an early stage of our business. And really that's what we do. Every one of our projects are environmentally sustainable, have a strong focus on that. And of course, also um, a strong focus on the concept that everyone shall prosper, which Dave Hodgson talks about, and I never, really um, paraphrase that until I met him many years later, but that concept that 
everybody along the, the path of a project or path of a deal um, benefits out of that. And so we, we take the view now that our projects uh, must, there must be an environmental enhancement, not just do no harm, but that's got to be better as a result of our project. Uh, and social advancement. There's got to be an advantage for everybody in the process. And of course, it has to stack up financially. There's got to be a strong economic benefit as well. So it's that really, that three, uh, you know, that, that tripod of sustainability is what we're all about. Um, turns out that's kingdom business. So I can, I, I can get it for construction, but paper straws? See, that's where it falls over for me, right? Paper straws. Uh, like, I've got kids, right? We go and get a smoothie. And I'll say to the clerk, can I have five extras? Because they're going to last two seconds with these kids, yeah. right? Yeah. So anyway, I'll probably get a bit of hate in the comments, but I think there's a limit to, uh, to how crazy we should go. What point did you become a believer? And what changed, you know, business-wise at that point? Well, the interesting thing is I grew up in a Christian family. And so I've always had uh, that understanding of, you know, the Bible, God, Jesus. Um, but I remember having a, a really personal experience at a young age. I was 13 or 14. I was actually in the bush on my own. And I had this incredible experience that I didn't understand. And years later, when I was formally baptized in the Holy Spirit, I had the same experience. And I knew that I was reminded that that happened when I was young. So the fact is that I guess I was a little bit different from my peers and so on uh, because I had that experience and I didn't know how to how to explain it but it helped it shaped how I did things and how I you know relied on the Lord to to guide with all our planning for our business all our ideas um, you know I'm a, I'm a creative uh, I'm a strong believer that we've got the ultimate source of creativity available to us um, we should call on that every day and um, yeah, yes, I'm an entrepreneur. I love new projects. I love starting up new businesses. We've done many of those in my career. Um, and you know that fresh creativity from God that flows through into the establishment of new projects, but also the design of our buildings, design of our developments, uh, the way we operate. Um, you know, it's it's exciting. So I like to get a project to the stage where it's running, operational. We either then on sell or we uh, manage that for a time, and then I move on to the next project. Mm. So that requires me to have a good, solid team behind me. Um, I realised at a young age, when I first started at the age of 25, that um, I needed to have a big team to fulfil the mm. vision and the dreams that I had. Um, and back then, you know, in construction, you, you, know, you had a lot of people around you on site. So you know, we very quickly employed 70, 75 people. Um, that's dropped back a bit now because we now outsource a lot more and we've kept our team smaller. But um, I learned very early this concept of if you want to get big things done, you've got to surround yourself with people, good people and big thinking people. Awesome. Um, I've got so many questions about that, but we better stay on, on some, some sort of task. What has God got for John Dingamance that he's got for nobody else? What, what are you doing? You know, we would typically call it the assignment, but what are you doing that's unique to you in terms of advancing the kingdom? Sure. I struggled with understanding my role and my place for a very long time. We had a very successful business. I remember reaching the age of 33. By then I was a millionaire and the business was very successful. 
um, and thinking, you know what, Jesus fulfilled everything that God wanted him to do at the age of 33. Here I am. You know, what am I doing? And uh, I went through on this journey that took many, many years. And it was actually at the age of 40 that I had this epiphany. I sold the business and then um, focused on uh, different things. So I guess um, at that point, there were two things that happened. One was I was always asking God, what's my purpose? And I reached the point where I said, right, I'm going down to the shack. Uh, I'm going to walk on the beach. And Lord, I, I fasted and prayed immediately after this. And I said, Lord, I expect you to give me my mission statement. What is John Dingaman's mission statement? And you know what? The moment, the following morning, the moment my foot touched on the beach, I got this. Uh, my purpose is to build and enable others to achieve their full potential, right? And we'd already been doing that in our business. Um, as I said, we surround ourselves with people and uh, we had you know, many of our staff were, we trained them up, we saw opportunity in them, we gave them additional training and skills. We helped them establish their own businesses. There have been many successful businesses that have come out of what we have done. And, and I realised that's what I'm doing. I'm enabling others. So when I came home and I excitedly shared that with my wife, she said, yeah, but. And um, so I, I went back to the Lord and he gave me this additional uh, bit on the end for strategic kingdom purposes. Turns out I was helping a lot of people who were abusing that help, who were, um, you know, being very selfish about the help and support they were getting and so on. So God clarified it's got to be for strategic kingdom purposes. So that was terrific. Building and enabling others to achieve their full potential for strategic kingdom purposes. And then um, later on, when I met Dave Hodgson and I understood the concept of assignment, which I hadn't ever heard of at that time, uh, it clarified a lot of things we were doing. And um, one key assignment that I've had all my life, really all my business life, is helping the local church to become more, more relevant, more attractive, and ultimately more influential. Um, and I've made a commitment to help local churches um, restructure the way they operate, reach out into their communities. And a lot of that's through the way we we help them design facilities that are 24-hour, seven-day-a-week facilities, not just, you know, used for once or twice on a Sunday in a midweek meeting. So those sorts of things. And also help finance them, structure them so, so that um, they become financed through other means, through enterprise, rather than just relying on handouts from, you know, people in the church. Um, and so that's been really, really successful in helping the church become more relevant uh, and, or individual churches become more relevant. So that's still a very, very strong assignment for me. And um, I do that on the side. Uh, and we use our business you know, to help implement that and supplement that. Uh, but that's a really important thing for me. Uh, and the other is really, um, you know, Dave Hodgson's assignment is so enormous that I've got on board with him in um, helping implement that. And uh, Right now, we've got um, a major, major project that he and I have been working on since 2011, <laughs> and uh, and that's now coming to fruition. And that's a you know multi-billion-dollar projects or series of projects that will have far-reaching consequences. So, so that, that's the 
you know, the two key assignments. Mm. Um, and of course, uh, I'm a committed family man and I, you know, I'm making sure that my children and grandchildren and their children are blessed. Yeah, well, they're your first assignments. So we'll come back to those and we'll also come back to what you're doing with Dave. I want to pick up on the stuff you're doing for the churches. You know, it's it's just the hallmark, right? You know, you've got this, you've got this construction background. You know, you've built a design, architect, drafting firm around you. You uh, clearly understand finances enough to build, sell a bunch of businesses. I think it's a beautiful journey when you know you can you can roll into a church, a, a senior pastor or whatever, um, and you've got the skill set to be able to you know bring this element of the kingdom. Like the Lord's, you've got the financial model because of the background. You've got the design elements. You understand how to bring the stakeholders of a city together to be able to do this. And then the pastor who just loves people and wants to see them grow and nurture them and preach and teach and those sort of things can use their gift incredibly well. But it's funny because I don't think many pastors ever could have had the natural gifting or the experiences or skill sets to be able to come up with your part. So it, it, it's, it's a wonderful story that, you know, like, like through a bunch of success and failures, you've been able to get this knowledge. You've to roll that into the body of Christ to be able to do something that typically hasn't been there. You know, and, and for a church to be 24-7, you know, a community center, you know, that's available to the public, it's incredibly financial because, you know, I think you said to me, the church is the number one stakeholder of the building and then they can bring in all these other parties to help fund it and have impact. And um, Yeah, and the beauty like, of that is that, that that model is that the church needs to reach out into its community to grow and have the influence and ultimately, you know, win people for the Lord. Um, but the traditional church, doesn't matter what denomination, has become a comfortable Christian club and almost quite exclusive. And in Australia, 94.3% of people don't attend church on a regular basis. Um, so the way it's operated in the past hasn't really convinced people that the church is important, right? Mm. So our model is make the church more attractive um, by not having them hidden away in an industrial site somewhere or in a Dagel building that's hundreds of years old and that's closed to the public. Um, create a center that is flourishing, that's, that meets the needs of its local community, has a lot of activity going on, um, and the church happens to be there and have a presence there and you know, ultimately hold its worship services there and, and, uh, and looks after people. So it's that model. Now, the beauty of that is that the church needs access to the community. This creates that access. Um, but also, the fact that the, the, that the people are coming in and having their needs met, there's a, there's a business scenario there, which we call the enterprise component, and that help funds, helps to fund the facilities. So it's that model um, that is working exceptionally well. There's, there's a, a, probably our hallmark is in um, northern, uh, northern Sydney, or in fact, just out of Gosford, Darren are there, the Impact Centre. The Impact Centre has over 10,000 people coming through a week into the center for a whole range of different things. And uh, and the church is prominently there in the center of that. Yeah, they'll just bump into the gospel at some point. They're gonna bump into something that's taking place or a person that's there, you know, and you just create a million opportunities for or 10,000 opportunities for a divine appointment, you know, yeah. which which you won't get if it's a closed club that's pitch black with a smoke, smoke machine on the inside. 
Um, the other thing that I really like about what, you know, because I'm trying to extrapolate your story and make it relevant to people listening. Here's one of the, the repeatable things that the Lord seems to be doing in the now, and that is, if you could picture what John just said, he's got this thriving business, and then on the side, he's able to do this project. It's like, but he, if you hadn't gone through the pain of building a business, learned how to scale a business, learned how to be a leader with a team, understand financials, be able to market your product, good with, if you hadn't done the business side, you, you wouldn't have the team around you or the money to be able to go and do what you've got to do. If there was no business, you wouldn't be able to underwrite doing this work on the side, right? Absolutely. So it's like, you know, in our world, we have this profit producing, coaching, you know, books, programs, and it is what gives us the money to be able to burn time doing a podcast and not getting a return for it and put on big events. And, you know, it, the people that I know that are doing the greatest, the, the business people I know who are doing the most for events, the kingdom of God, live in that kind of tension between I have to have my profit producing stuff that allows me, gives me the resources, the time, the skills, the money to be able to go and do what I need to go and do over there. And I'm saying that because I want people to go, aha. Uh -huh. So it doesn't have to be the same thing, right? So yours are somewhat linked. It's the design skills that able you to be able to create good design for these impact centers. I guess mine's closely linked, but I know people who are building you know, we, we know Dave Rollins as a mutual friend. He's like building a shade cloth business and funding orphanages and people with no food. But it's the same concept. They're just, you know, wildly different. And I'm saying this to give people permission to kind of go, ah, oh, so my business can throw off some time, some money, some resources, some team to be able to go and do what the Lord's got on me. Yes, that's typically yeah. how it seems to work. No, absolutely correct, Wes. And see, that's kingdom business. There are many Christians in business, um, but they don't operate necessarily a kingdom business. They operate a business the way the world operates a business because that's all they know. Um, however, um, the model of kingdom business is that it, all the resources God provides us in our business is for the kingdom, ultimately for advancing the kingdom. Um, if, we're, if we happen to be you know, buying and selling shade cloth uh, and having all the marketing and, and uh, the infrastructure surrounding that, that's really a resource for the kingdom. And it's that approach that we take. So I find with um, working with churches, there's a lots of businesses, more business people sitting in the church that are sitting on their hands going, oh, you know, how can I get involved? What can I do? I'd love to you know, use my business uh, to, to help advance the kingdom. And they see this model being worked out. They start to participate uh, and it changes their lives, yeah. you know, because there's now a purpose in what they're doing. And it's more than just the model of, you know, let's make a lot of profit over here and do business the hard way and screw people over. And it's all about that profit so that we can give 10% to the Lord. Right? that's not it. That's not kingdom business. <laughs> it's utilising all the resources that we have. And I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the key, key hallmarks of what we do is, is to advance people individually and help skill them up and, and give them opportunity so that they can, you know, rec recreate this in the businesses that they start up or the, the activities that they're involved with. So it's, it's, not, it's all resource. It's the capacity of a business. Sure, it's the finance, but it's also the people mm. and the... Um, and the networks and the and the other you know uh, 
aspects um, that come with that. Cool. So we've referenced Dave Hodgson a few times. If you don't know what we're talking about here, go back to episode 13 of the podcast. In fact, there's two, we, 13. My chat with Dave Hodgson took so long, we put it over two episodes. Um, so go back to episode 13 and catch it and, and your wife will be better for it. Uh, John, talk us about some supernatural provision. I know you've seen a heap. Um, you know, this is, a, this is an immigrant kid from Tassie. I mean, if you were to stack you up against 100 other immigrant kids from Tassie, you probably weren't meant to outperform in a great way, you know, if you just looked at standards and norms. So, you, you know, you've obviously experienced some, some supernatural, some blessings. So, tell us a couple of war stories about where you have seen supernatural provision and, and, and let's brag on God for a minute. Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, I probably I mentioned that at the age of forty, I had this significant change and sold the business and so on. Um, and this came about because uh, I mentioned that the twins were born seven years later. Identical twin girls. They were born premature, um, very premature. Though, and Melody, one of the little girls, Summer was fine, but Melody had a um, requirement major surgery. She had um, a particular issue that required major major surgery. And so they got rushed to Hobart. I live in Launceston in the northern part of the city of Tassie. And they got rushed to the hospital in Hobart. Uh, they got rushed together because um, Melody fretted without summer there. So they were in the same little humidity crib in an ambulance. Anyway, they, Aileen told me later that the nurses had said to her that Melody was going to die and be thankful you've got one child. But I spent the next three days with Melody um, in the ICU. And I remember, you know, singing to her and praying over her and crying over her. And, and in the end, I got on my knees before this baby who had you know, all these tubes and there was a gadget pressing her, her lungs up and down. And there was all these connections and screens and monitors and it didn't look good. I got on my knees and I said, God, I'll give you everything I own if you give me back my daughter. And Melody immediately opened her eyes. And I knew that God had answered that prayer. And so she recovered very quickly. She was the smallest baby that was ever released from the, uh, the hospital, the pediatric hospital. She came home. And uh, although she had a few little challenges uh, in the first few years of life, she, we got through that. And I know that that was a supernatural miracle that occurred at that point. So I was then convicted. Um, to give everything to the Lord. And that resulted in me handing over my business. Uh, I say I sold it, but I actually handed it over. Um, and I said to the Lord, okay, here I am. I've given up everything. Here I am. Um, do you want me to be a pastor? I've had prophetic words about being a pastor. And I said, okay, so I'll be a pastor. I'll be a missionary. You know, that's all we knew really back then was how to serve the Lord. And within six weeks, I was back in business. So I knew with clarity, God wanted me in business. Business is ministry. Business is serving the Lord 100%. If you're called to be a pastor, yes, be a pastor, because that's what you're called to be. But if you're not, you're called to business, be a business minister. And, uh, and that was my story. So, so from then on, I knew to expect miracles. And... Being entrepreneurial means you need a bit of faith, right? You need a lot of faith because we step out into projects that and and you know opportunities that no one else would because it's too risky. 
But ultimately, you know, I love that scripture that in Hebrews it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, that's not, okay, I'm a Christian, I have faith. No, that's the faith that walks out to the edge beyond anything we've got or known and we're moving into new territory and we're stepping out into the abyss expecting God to hold us up. That's the faith that pleases God. So I've practiced that, Wes, and, um, and experienced, you know, unbelievable um, what are really miracles as a result of that. I don't know what it's like there, but it was a bit dusty here for a minute. Must be all the dust in the air. You telling that story about your daughters because, uh, I mean, as a man with daughters as well, it's like far out. That, that, that's a moment. You had a moment there. Undeniable evidence of the goodness of God. And, and it was nothing to do with business, but I guess it sparked the journey of business. So, so far, it all sounds like John has it all together and, and he's got some um, weird favour from heaven that he just gets nothing but blessing. Uh, he gets a good wife, he gets great kids, his businesses thrive, he sells them, he, you know, he gets these wonderful miracles. Like, like you, you're basically Jesus at this point, right? But, uh, but I know... I know that there are other elements to the story that aren't so amazing. Um, and, you know, only what you've shared with me over the years. And, um, you know, I know there was a period of time, I think from memory, I, I may miss a few steps, but post-GFC, things were quite challenging for you. And, um, and then uh, even more recently and possibly less challenging, there was a project that you, you know, you kind of got let down on and you were left holding the can to some degree. Tell us about some of the more challenging times that John's had over the years. Yeah, sure, Wes. And um, so, yeah, the GFC um, 2008 um, and 2009 uh, had a big impact on us because we were exposed to international finance on some major projects. Um, so what happened was, was that um, we were stuck for millions of dollars on projects of cash that was supposed to come in to pay, um, you know, all the work that we'd done, and that money never came through. Um, so uh, that made things very difficult. Cash flow got tight. I started negotiating with my creditors about, you know, payment plans and things like that. One of them was the ATO. <laughs> and... Um, there was one insurance company who um, had a bond facility and we drew on their bond facility and used that to help with cash flow. But it came with a rider that had to be paid back within 12 months. And uh, so when the 12 months um, was up, uh, they then claimed us, claimed that back, went through a legal process. Um, I, interestingly too, also at that time, I had... Um, basically was focusing on new projects. I've built a management team and I've just appointed a new CEO and a new CFO. And those two guys knew each other, worked together previously, and I let them run the business. Um, so there, unfortunately, there was mismanagement involved and also um, some misdirection of funds as well. So there was a number of things that occurred and they all sort of came together and that culminated uh, in this winding up order on our main company, which is our main um, contracting company. And uh, our lawyers said, oh, no, that'll be fine. Um, you know, we'll just attend the hearing. And uh, I actually had a pledge for finance to refinance the company. And that was, uh, we'd received documents and letters. We were about to sign the contract. And the lawyer said, no, that'll be fine. So 
he attended the hearing and it was in Sydney, so um, I wasn't there, but he, he attended the hearing. He said, no, it will be all fine. Unfortunately, it wasn't all fine. He wasn't able to convince the judge or magistrate or whatever, and a winding up order came down. Immediate, like it was so unprecedented the way that it happened. Um, and immediately the following morning, I had one of the big um, you know, firms that operate in that horrible side of industry, uh, <laughs> they're crooks, um, came, came down and took over the company. And we had you know, 30 odd employees. Um, and they said, okay, um, you're finished up. And all the money was pulled. We had something like 500,000 in the bank. They took that money immediately. And then over the next few months, uh, they used up all our cash, used up all our assets um, with huge fees. And then finally, um, you know, wound up the company. So like that's a, a terribly traumatic situation to be in, particularly when you're, you know, you've built up this team and, and I felt very, very responsible for every, every one of our team and their families. And, you know, it is like a big family. So, but God gave me strategies. And, um, and so we had another company which we transferred our staff into and I worked really hard at negotiating um, a major contract um, in that company, which turned out to be a five or six million dollar contract. And um, we were able to commence business in that company, a similar business, but slightly different. And that brought in the cash flows. And so we had no access to any of the other funds or anything else. Um, so I went to all the creditors who were not going to get anything out of, out of the winding up. It was all left with the accountants um, and said to them, look, I've got this new contract. Um, I'm going to have to rely on you to provide us with um, you know, goods and services the way you did before. I recognize that um, you're not going to get anything out of the winding up. However, I commit to paying you back for what was owed um, by the previous company. Now, I didn't have to do that because it was all you know, a winding up process, um, but I wanted to maintain the relationships. And I said, I'll need 12 months to do that. So there's a big commitment, right? In addition to uh, the fact that you know, we had to build cash flow for the new company. And meanwhile, um, the banks, of course, got nervous. So they wanted, um, they called in all the loans that we had on properties and investment properties and so on. And we had to start selling properties. So I did a deal with the banks and said, um, I'd like to sell the properties, give me six weeks. And if, I, if they're not sold, you can sell them. So it even came down to our own home, our personal home. And this is where Dave Hobson stepped in. I, um, Dave and I had uh, only met a few, like about six months earlier, and we, I had asked him to speak at a, at a summit that I'd put on in Tasmania. And uh, Dave said, look, I'll put in an, a contract to purchase your home um, and I'll make it a six-month settlement. And by the end of six months, would you be in a position to, to be able to settle it? I said, yeah, I would. So we committed to that. So Dave didn't put any money down, but he signed a contract on my home, and um, you know, which was a tremendous gesture. And I also had a friend do that for another property that we had. Um, and so 
at the end of that six months, I was able to had enough money to be able to do a deal with another bank to settle uh, that purchase and the same on the other property. So I ended up with two of our key properties again within that 12 month period, plus the business, new business was up and running. The staff, um, some of them moved on, um, but most of them stayed and you know we were up and running again. Now, during that whole time, yeah, it was horribly traumatic, especially when you know there's people serving notices and knocking on our door. And, and the twins would have been young. The twins were young, yeah, yeah. And um, it was pretty traumatic, especially for Aileen. And, um, but one of the key things that struck me every day was I'd be leaning into God for strategies. Like, here's this problem. It's about to, everything's about to collapse. How do I deal with that? And God would give me strategies. And it was remarkable. And at the end of the week, I'd go on a Friday night and I'd go, wow, we got through this week. That's amazing. And it was almost, um, in fact, I was delighted and excited about the coming week, which is odd because of the strategy to what God was going to give me. And I had this faith that we're going to pull through this, no violence at all. And yeah, it was traumatic, but this unbelievable experience of God providing strategies, not just you know, weekly or monthly, but daily and even hourly strategies on how to solve issues. And guys, I tell you, that's, that's how business should be run. We should be leaning into God all the time, not just when we're down and out, but when, when we're working every aspect, you know, having God involved in every meeting, seeking his advice about every issue that comes up. And, and it was actually really exciting. Um, so the interesting thing about that was a few years later, I had the opportunity to participate in the project. Uh, because of our sustainability focus, there was a, a company from Melbourne that was investing in a coal mine in Tasmania. And uh, they asked our company to provide all those strategic services and procure all the necessary statutory approvals to deal with the EPA and get the project going over the line, which we did. We secured all of those permits and approvals. Um, however, the mine didn't really progress because they didn't have the capital. So I said, well, do you want us to help you raise capital for the project? And at that stage, I remembered my mate, Dave, who helped me out. And I said, Dave, here's an opportunity, if you're interested, to come into this project. Um, and that began uh, the start of, uh, of this long journey that Dave and I have been on, where he and I now own um, the coal resource, the 100% the owned uh, coal mine, and we've developed a, a significant project using te various technologies that will convert coal to hydrogen for the um, future booming um, hydrogen economy. And so, yeah, that, that uh, has been a, a long journey, but it's been an, an exciting one and it's coming into culmination now. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's how you know relationships work, and and uh, frankly, some of the strategies I learned during the, that difficult time in how to deal with banks, how to deal with people, how to how to solve what seemed insurmountable problems, has really helped us as we're moving into this you know this huge huge project. So if you look at the timeline, right, two thousand and seven, you're probably riding high, right? Like it's all going incredibly well. Two thousand and eight nine and it's like the bottom of the pit. But you obviously leaned into the Lord. Um, 2011, 
comes an opportunity that's going to literally change your life. And 2023 now, those projects that they don't take five minutes. It's not building a it's not building a four bedroom house. Um, are you comfortable to share the value of the mine today? Yeah. So what we've done over that period of time was continued exploration. We've got this very large uh, exploration license, and so we've continued that process, and um, and spent millions of dollars doing that. Um, so that has now boosted the value of the mine. The coal resource value is 1.4 billion, uh, which is extraordinary. Uh, we've put in 71 million together. Dave and I have put that money into the company to get it to the to where it is. Um, and now the hydrogen project, um, well, that's been valued at just under a billion dollars in addition to the coal. So, so that's our first hydrogen project. So we're talking big numbers. <laughs> that, you know, uh, in a relatively short time, really, when you consider, you know, 2000 and, uh, and in fact, it was 2009 and 10 was our hardest time. We struggled for a couple of years and then that, that occurred. So, so, yeah, it's God isn't and he always comes through. And yes, we're tested in that. Um, but I tell you guys, if, if you're tested, it's actually a wonderful thing. Like, it's almost tested to the limits of endurance sometimes, uh, but it's remarkable what we find out about ourselves and our capacity, and more importantly, what we find out about God's grace and his you know, ability to just take us through. I mean, you're kind of still tested today, though, I would think, I would think because, I mean, uh, you know, it's valued at $1.4 billion. You could have listed this a long time ago and just walked away happily ever after, or you could have, you could have trade-sailed this, this mine to somebody. Um, would actually be hard to list today because everyone hates them. But um, you, you know, over that last ten years, you could have listed this business and bailed, like, and and never have thought about needing money ever, ever again, and, and lived in a, you know, on a yacht in Peru for the rest of the time or whatever you wanted to do. But you didn't. So that there would be a test, I would think, to to not cash out when times are hard because you you know that's a long journey. So um, yeah. is that is that a fair call? You, maybe it's not a test for you. Maybe you'd already decided. Um, you know, what, what it is what it is. But I would think oh, there's no, a so, so that's that comes back to purpose and kingdom assignment. Um, you know, yes, many people say to me, when are you going to retire? I'm in my early 60s. I don't get retirement. Like, your retirement's not in the Bible. Your assignment lasts until it's finished. Um, so, so, yes, we could have done that. But the importance of this is, is so strategic and so critical for the world. Um, the Greenies would like to phase out coal immediately. Coal is still the most reliable and most, uh, most cost-effective, cheapest form of, of energy. There are hundreds of millions of people, probably billions of people, relying on cheap, reliable energy to get them out of poverty. And you know, there's been many papers written about the importance of energy. In fact, it's the key important ingredient in taking people out of extreme poverty. So if coal was eradicated overnight, um, that process would stop. But not only that, there'd be you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people dying as a result of the coal industry not being uh, available. So our process is, okay, let's use coal to produce clean energy, and hydrogen is clean energy. Uh, we've worked out how to do that in a way that's 100% emissions-free, which is a very, very unique technology. Um, and, and so this is a transition for the coal industry. Instead of shutting it down in South Africa and shutting it down in Asia where 
you know, millions of people rely on the coal industry. Let's transition that industry into clean energy through hydrogen until such time as there are, you know, cheaper forms of energy because mm. uh, coal will shut down eventually. So we see it as a transition and we see it as really important um, for protecting uh, poor people around the yeah. world. So, so that's the driving motivation and ambition for us to take this project forward. I also, for the sake of the listeners, I want to go back to that 2009-10 period. What were the lessons? So you, you putting the business under management of those two fellows was obviously a mistake in hindsight. What else can you learn and distill from that period of time that somebody could learn from today? Look, and because I'm a trusting person, um, I've, and you know, my wife has reminded me I'm too trusting on many occasions. I've become a lot more careful about things like appointments and giving too much responsibility um, to people. Um, I'm a really good delegator, um, but I'm too trusting with people. And um, so I've learned that lesson. Now, I, you know my two sons, Liam and Sam. Uh, Jamin is my third son. He's not necessarily involved in the business. He's a musician doing other exciting things. But Liam and Sam are now actively involved in the business. In fact, they're key executives now. Um, and that's been a real blessing for me. I never planned that to happen, um, but that's something that God has done. And, and frankly, those two boys are far smarter, far better than the guys I paid big money to back in the day, you know. So, so that's, that's a positive thing. Um, the, look, the other thing is I, I was stretched too thin from a cash flow point of view. Cash is king and you should always have cash available for a rainy day for the fact that someone doesn't pay a huge bill or the fact that you know anything could happen. Um, because when you're when you need it and you're scrambling around looking for it, it's impossible to find pretty well. Um, so you know what I was doing was using the cash generated by the company to help churches, that was one thing, and also start up new new projects. And I was using it up too too quickly. So we've changed that. We now hold a buffer, and mm -hmm. we um, uh, we're much wiser about that. So yeah, key personnel. I've you know I've just got to be much more selective. I should rely on professional help in selecting key personnel, um, particularly in today's world. Um, we have had really good solid systems, management systems and accounting systems. However, there was a hole in this particular software and people were able to go back and change the general ledger wow. so that the reports came out showing a certain thing which looked rosy, but in reality it was, was not. So I had to change my accountants, um, external accountants who identified that. So, you know, there's a trap for young players. Um, and also, I was probably too trusting in the way that I worked with certain parties. One of them was a, a Chinese group that wanted to do a resort development in Tasmania. We identified the site. We came up with a concept design for a brilliant result. We did all the feasibilities. We then, they proceeded uh, or agreed to proceed on that basis. We then procured all the statutory permits and approvals and got the initial funding for them and everything else, um, but they were dodgy. <laughs> so, so they stopped paying 
and you know, we're talking millions of dollars that should have come to us. Um, at, interestingly, uh, a few years ago, the property, um, well, they disappeared. The property is still sitting there and the federal police seized the property. Turns out these Chinese people were money launderers. And uh, so I've, you know, I learned a lesson there that I should have got legal advice at the time of the contracts instead of trusting my judgment and the judgment of my management team back then. Um, so I'm, I'm a lot more cautious, I guess, than I was, Wes, um, and um, more, more careful about people. You know, the other thing uh, I've, I've learned, even with Christians, I've, I've always had a view, oh, they're Christians, they love the Lord, oh, well, they're a the safe bet. Well, I've been ripped off by more people who claim to be Christians than uh, people who don't claim to be Christians. So uh, that's also a trap. We've got to be really careful. So I guess Jesus said, you'll know my followers by their fruits, not by what they say or who they, who they you know, hang with. And we've just got to look for the fruit and be much more diligent in how we engage with people. So that was the big lesson for me. Very good. Um, let's talk about family for a minute, right? So <clears throat> I know you've got a big family um, and you do family well. Uh, I know I've, I've sat around a dinner table with you and the extended family and, and the kids and their partners and it's a beautiful thing to see. Like there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a really nice culture, respect, honour, also a lot of fun, bit of cheeky um, and uh, I've spent a bit of time with your two boys um, and they're sharp. Uh, driven, um, you know, they, they want to achieve and, and do big things. Um, yeah, you, you, your daughters have, you know, from a health kick, from, from a health challenge early on to probably one of the fittest people on earth today. Yeah. Like, um, how, that, that doesn't happen by accident, right? That, uh, sure, you love your kids and you love your wife. There's plenty of people that love their kids and love their wife and don't end up with a really tight family. Um, what sort of boundaries did you have in place? What sort of structure did you have in place so that your family would thrive um, and, you know, you didn't sacrifice them on the altar of success? Yeah. What did you do? Yeah. Ailey and I both still stand amazed and we thank God, you know, every day for the blessing of our family. Um, Aileen is an excellent mother. She's sharp, she's organised um, and she's, um, you know, she's, she's just been a key in, in raising the children. Uh, I guess for me, I've seen too often, um, even as a young person, where business becomes so enthralling and then engaging and then overwhelming, um, that family suffers. And I chose the moment we start our business not to do that. And so I said to Aileen at the time, I said, um, I'm gonna start this company. <clears throat> it's gonna take a lot of my time but I will not work Saturdays or Sundays unless it's absolutely necessary. And I want you to hold me accountable to that. I should be able to do everything I do in five days a week. I said, but don't expect me to be home for breakfast or dinner during the week because there'll be something that happens that crops up and I may not turn up for dinner and I may not turn up for breakfast uh, or I'd have to leave early for breakfast. I said, but count on me being there on the weekends. And by the way, because she's a good organiser and I was a project manager, um, we were thrashing a bit on how to manage certain things. And I said, so by the way, you manage all our personal finances. 
um, you know, the money that, that I get in the salary from the company and, it, and other things that, you know, that uh, I can send through. You deal with all that. I'm not interested in how you manage that. I trust you to manage that. However, um, I'll focus on the business. And I said, the other thing is that when it comes to our social life on weekends, I said, you decide what we do on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, so it became really clear I'm focusing on the business um, and, um, and I'm there for you with uh, you know, the social life and the other things. Now, I always made a point of being home uh, when I could, uh, unless I was traveling, being home to actually put the kids to bed. Um, and, I, and I was there for most dinners anyway, um, but I always focused on, on that. So, uh, and I always had a terrific time with them on the weekends. <laughs> you know, I was there for them. But, but another thing I'll tell you, when it comes, you mentioned about the drive, every one of my kids have drive and passion and enthusiasm. And some of them are in business and doing exceptionally well. Is um, when we always made it clear to them, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So we never gave our kids anything for nothing. And um, when they were little, um, of course, you know, you give them pocket money and so on. But as they became, you know, young teenagers and that, and they wanted some money, oh, I'd really like to buy a bike. Or, yeah, sure, you can buy a bike. Yeah, but I need, you know, 200 bucks. Well, here's a list of jobs. And we lived on the property. And so we negotiated with all my kids. Here's a list of jobs that need doing. And we set rates beside certain jobs, like, you know, washing the car, mowing the grass. Um, and there were other jobs that required an hourly rate. We degreed those hourly rates. And so we did that with each one of our kids. And by the way, if you want to get paid, present me with an invoice. So they learned really on, early on, the concept of work, the concept of enterprise, and how, you know, the administration component, how you actually get paid. And, um, and I think that was a key thing in them understanding, you know, work ethic and also trading and enterprise and growth. And, mm. and so you know, Liam, um, he was really good at it and so good that he sold his services to the neighbour as well and bought his first car before he was 16, you know, things like that, which is, uh, which is really encouraging. Yeah, we don't do pocket money either. We do commission. Don't work, don't get paid. You know, like that's how it was for me and you when we started, right? So it's good if it's good enough for us at the start, it's good enough for the kids. They get enough, they get enough stuff at Christmas and birthdays and all the other stuff, right? So they gotta work for some. Um, I you know, because I think about that and I'm like, they're all really nice boundaries. I think about a random week when you would have gone leave Tassie, fly to Melbourne, flip Melbourne to Adelaide, Adelaide, meeting in Brisbane, down to Sydney and home, and you get home on a Friday night at 11 p.m., and now you've promised that, you're, that, you, that the family can have you on the Saturday. Yeah. But you probably can't be bothered to get up and play some game. Like, how did you handle those moments? What, what was the reason, what was the rationale to go, I'm beat, but I, I, I promised that it would be a, you know, a, a two-way relationship. What, what, did you have those moments, and how did you handle them? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, but I would, because that was so important, uh, I would never dodge that. And so I would, you know, um, sort of G myself up on the trip home on a Friday night and say, you know, this and, and look forward to this time together. And um, so, so, yes, it was, it really is number one importance to me. 
um, in our family and, and, and we, we always did our best to make that. So it's not a tactic, right? Like I, I believe you give time to what you value. It's, it's pretty that simple, right? If you don't value fitness, you won't do anything about it, right? If you value it, you'll find time for it. So for you, it was just a values equation. It was, it was here and so it got the necessary time and energy and focus that it needed. You know, I think for a lot of people, it might be down here for a period of time. Business is a bit more important and, you know, that's probably not a smart move, but then you need strategies and tactics to try and fake it. But you're probably better off just to go, listen, God made family before he made business. So let's, let's kind of keep it in that line. Yeah, and um, look, we recognize that early on when, you, when you start up and you're starting a business, yeah, you've got to put a lot of hours and yeah. effort into it. Um, and I did, Aileen was helpful in the business in the sense that she, um, she came and did admin work on a part-time basis at different times. I also got her involved in interviews uh, for new staff later on once I realised the value and importance of having, you know, that women's discernment. Discernment, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all, we've all lost out there. <laughs> They're all really cool stories and there's a lot of wisdom in there for other people. You know, there'd be somebody that's listening to this podcast right now. They're on, they're on Apple Podcast or Spotify or Google or, or watching this on YouTube. You know, they might be early on in their business and it's a real struggle. What would you say to them? Just want to give you a minute to kind of preach at some people right now. Just off the cuff, what would you say to somebody right now who's on a treadmill or driving or going for a walk or whatever? What, 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 do, you, what do you want to impart to some other early stage kingdom entrepreneurs? The first thing is understand that business is actually ministry and God's called you to that. So um, if you get that clarified and, and that's your purpose right now and, and your assignment's involved in that, um, then you can, I think it takes a lot of pressure off, particularly if you're a Christian person. Then um, understand that God wants you to succeed in every area of your life. The Bible says, makes it really clear, I think, in Deuteronomy that wealth comes from God and he provides no stress with it. So if we have that attitude that if we do the right thing, help people along the way, commit to my purpose and my assignment, the wealth will follow, and it does. And as you said earlier, if your values are, if it's values-based and you put your priorities where your values are, the wealth will follow. Look, and I understand some people get caught on that treadmill um, you do need to have people around you. Um, there's, there's this concept of the owner-operator business, which I think holds most people back, where they're really good at something and they'll build a business to the point where they're stretched so, so thin uh, doing what they're good at, whereas God wants to expand your business. He wants to expand your life, expand your mind, um, and you can only do that by having other people come in and, and you know, take the, taking the, the load off you, and that will free you up. You know, every step I've had where I've reached a point where I'm too busy and I go, okay, I've got to let something go. So I say, okay, what are the key things that I need to hold on to that I can't delegate? And what are the things that, frankly, other people can do better? And, I, and I've done that every step and I've brought people in to fill, uh, to fill that spot. All of a sudden I'm freed up and I've got creative time with God mm. and quality time with my family and I get these amazing ideas and I start the next thing. Mm. 
either a new project or a business or whatever. And then I reach that point again where I'm busy and full up and I have to repeat that. So I, I think that owner operator mentality has to go. Um, if, if people can learn how to cope with that and move that step beyond that, I reckon, I reckon you'll find that, you know, that life will be so much better. Yeah, I mean, there's no great business run by one or two people. There's not a great business in the world run by one or two people. You've got to build a team and scale it and, and, and get out of the way, which is, which is that. Hey, uh, John, that was awesome. That's a, there's a lot of gold in there, a lot, lot of wisdom for people to draw from. Uh, really appreciate you. You know, you said early 60s and no, in, no intention to slow down. So I can't wait for a, a, you know, a chat when you're in early 70s and early 80s and early 90s. I mean, you know, if the Lord's been able to do that through you in, you know, in the first 60, you know, it's going to get exponential from here. And so it's going to be really, really fun to watch. You know, I know that you're not doing this for you anymore. Like, you're good. This is all about the assignment and legacy and building something that changes culture. And I know the Lord can do a lot with, with that kind of person and that kind of heart. So, yeah, really appreciate you. And uh, we are certainly blessed to be having this chat with you. Guys, you know, um, as we always do on here, right, I, I want you to go, okay, what, what was the top one thing that John said that really jumped out to you? And then pop it in the comments. You know, we talked about family. We talked about challenges. We talked about, you know, those early years, right? You know, we talked about some of the businesses that he's in. We talked about the, the success. Like, what was the one thing that jumped out to you that John said, do me a favor, go and put it in the comments and I want to engage with you there. John, thank you so much for giving us your time. I know you're really busy, but it's been a blessing. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Wes. All right, guys, I'll see you next week for the next episode of Kingdom Business Podcast.